Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8, please. The Gospel of John chapter 8. As we continue through the Gospel of John Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. And our text this morning is going to be verses 1 through 11 of John chapter 8. And so you follow along with me once you find your place. As I read our text here this morning, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. So you get the picture here. It's early in the morning. Jesus comes to the temple again, and he's been in the temple prior to this because it was a feast in a Jewish holiday, the Feast of Tabernacles. But the Bible says that he went out into the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He's come back to the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sits down, and he's going to start teaching them. So that's the scene. Verse 3, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they set her in the midst... They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, He lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. There's a story that's told of a great English prince who went to visit a famous king of Spain. And the prince was taken down to the galleys to see the men that were chained to the oars and doomed to be slaves for life. The king of Spain promised, in honor of the prince's visit, that he would set free any one of these men that the prince might choose. So the prince went to one prisoner who was chained to the oars, and he said, My poor fellow, I'm so sorry to see you in this plight. How came you here? The man answered, he said, Ah, sire, false witnesses gave evidence against me. I am suffering wrongfully. Indeed, said the prince, and passed on to the next man. My poor fellow, I'm so sorry to see you here. How did it happen? The man said, Sire, I certainly did wrong, but not to any great extent. I ought not to be here. Indeed, said the prince, and he went on to others who told him similar tales. At the last, he came to one prisoner who said, Sire, I am often thankful that I am here, for I am sorry to own that if I had received my due, I should have been executed. 
I am certainly guilty of all that was laid to my charge, and my severest punishment is just. The prince replied wittily to him. He said, It's a pity that such a guilty wretch as you is here to be chained among these innocent men, and therefore I will set you free. That illustration came from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon's illustration resembles the account that we have in Scripture before us today. One was guilty, that was certain. Others had committed crimes themselves but refused to admit them and saw the deeds of others much worse than their own. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, provided pardon for one who was so undeserving. And it's a powerful story that is before us, and it clearly teaches us from the perspective of God's perfect holiness that all of us fall short of the glory of God, and all of us desperately need not justice, but mercy and grace. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to follow a simple three-word outline as we consider this passage. We're going to get a better understanding of the text. We're going to look at its background, and then we'll conclude with some principles that we can apply in our lives today. Here's the outline for you. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to consider the confrontation The second part of verse 6 down through verse 9, we're going to look at the conviction. And then thirdly, verses 10 and 11, we're going to see the comfort. And so I want us to consider these thoughts, and then we'll make applications at the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give your grace today, Lord, to preach your word. And I'm thankful that the word of God is quick. It's alive. It's powerful. Lord, that it does its job. And Lord, I pray that you'd use your spirit today. Uh, to minister, challenge every heart here this morning. That we are not here by accident or even just routine. We're here because there is something that you want to work in our hearts today through your word. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be open to it, surrendered to it, and, Lord, that your will is done. In Jesus' name, amen. Consider, first of all, the confrontation with me. We read verses 1 through 6 as the whole, or the whole passage, but let me read verses 1 through 6 again. And again, verses 1 and 2, you see the scene that it's early in the morning. Jesus came to the temple. He sits down. He's teaching a multitude of people. In verse 3, the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery. In the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. And so again, we see that it's early in the morning, the sun probably just having come up. Multitudes of people gather around Jesus in the temple because they want to hear him teach. Jesus sits down in the midst of them, which in that culture, by the way, communicated authority, one who had authority to teach. And they recognized that. And the crowds continued to come into the temple court. And as Jesus is teaching all of the people, suddenly the religious leaders, arrogant Pharisees, barge in and they interrupt Jesus' teaching and they're dragging a woman to put in front of him. Now, the Bible doesn't say they're dragging him, but my guess is is that she probably wasn't going very willingly. 
in front of all of these people. She probably wasn't, uh, she probably wasn't just, uh, you know, whatever you want to do, guys. But here they are, they come, and the Bible says that they brought unto him a woman, and when they had set her in the midst, they were forcibly doing this. And they bring this woman in front of all of these people, and the text says that they made her stand in front of the group as they begin to lay out the charges against her. Now just think about that for a second. Can you imagine how she must have felt? She was taken in adultery, and here they are parading her in front of all of these people, making a big spectacle and a big scene in front of all of these people. You can imagine how she must have felt. John tells us in verse 6 that all of this that they were doing was a setup. Verse 6 says, this they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. Now, what's also interesting is that verse 5 states that they were going by the letter of the law. Here's what the Pharisees were wanting to do. Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? They were wanting to go by the letter of the law when it came to this woman's sin and the charges against her. What's interesting, though, is that Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10 states that in a situation like this, the man and the woman adulterer were supposed to be stoned. I don't see a man here. Do you? No. Where was he? Where was he in all of this? Here they wanted to go by the letter of the law, but they weren't actually even following the law themselves. Maybe the man was part of the problem. Maybe he was part of this trap somehow. We don't know. But you could say, how else would they know when to catch her in the act? It was all a setup. But you think about this trap that the Pharisees are setting for Jesus. It's quite a clever trap. The law of Moses specifies death by stoning for adultery. And yet, Roman law forbids the Jews from carrying out executions like that. And so if Jesus doesn't condemn the woman here, he breaks the Jewish law. If he does condemn her, then he's breaking Roman law. They have something to accuse him with. What hypocrites they are. They accuse a woman of adultery, but it was all part of their scheme to commit murder. What a bunch of hypocrites. The Pharisees justified their hypocrisy in this. Listen, here's the principle or the, the application. The Pharisees justified their hypocrisy in the same way that many of us do when we look at, at our own sins as being excusable while we come down pretty hard on other people's lives and their sins. You know, we preach really hard against sexual sin or immorality, and people find out and they're horrified at what somebody could possibly do. How could you do that? How could you react this way? But what about lying? And what about gossip? And what about backbiting? We want the letter of the law. How could somebody such do such a thing, but we dismiss the ugliness of our own sin so often? We view somebody else's sin as horrifying while dismissing our own as excusable. These guys were hypocrites. 
that's the confrontation. But secondly, notice the conviction. The second part of verse 6 says, But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So we find here in our, in our text, the very next step comes the conviction. But think about this, and like I don't know if you can get a, a feel and a picture in your mind of, of the tension in the room at this point. Here they are in front of all of these people, and they bring and drag this woman, and they start parading her in front of the people, laying out the charges against her. And Jesus, <clears throat> instead of instantly condemning her, he stoops down on the ground or, and starts to write on the ground with his finger. I think you can probably sense the tension in the room here. The religious leaders have, have just dropped a pretty difficult question on Jesus. And maybe everyone's just sitting there watching, wondering what Jesus is going to say. Maybe the religious leaders are feeling fairly smug at this point. Ha! We got him with this one. But notice here that Jesus doesn't answer their question at all in verse 6. Instead, instead, he bends down and he starts to write on the ground. Have you ever wondered what he wrote? The Bible doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote. But it seems like it must have been something very pointed, something very convicting. And I was thinking about that and I, I looked up the Greek word that is translated as right in our text here. And it's the word katagrapho, which has the nuance of making a list. And I'm wondering, I wonder if Jesus, not answering them at all, bent down and he starts writing in the dirt. And, maybe, and he's making a list. But what kind of a list would it be? Possibly Jesus is making a list of all the secret sins that each one of those Pharisees had in their own life that wasn't visible to other people. And he just starts naming them. Maybe they're watching. And they're looking as Jesus is writing. And maybe in their heart, all of a sudden what they see on the ground is piercing something that is convicting in their own heart. Jesus knows the wickedness of their heart. He knows their thoughts. Now, we don't know for sure what it was, but possibly, as he's making this list, something struck them. And then in verse 7, let's look at verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself. That phrase, they continued asking him, it really means they continued asking obstinately. It wasn't a gentle or a, you know, can you tell us, Lord? It was an obstinate. It was, it was evidence of what their heart was. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus straightens up. He gives the posture of strength, and he says to them, 
If any of you are without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. If you think about what Jesus just said, the word that he uses here is he says, whichever one of you is sinless, you be the one to first cast a stone at her. Now, Jesus was upholding the standard of God's perfect holiness here. He says to these guys, you want to follow the letter of the law? Go ahead. Go ahead and do it. But he made it clear that there's only one person who is present who could have judged this woman. There was only one who is sinless in this group. And with those words, Jesus made these religious leaders very uncomfortable. Maybe as uncomfortable as they made the woman feel. Maybe they were stunned. They probably were. They probably thought Jesus was going to let the woman go. But instead of letting the woman go, Jesus upholds the law of Moses. You notice the wording here? Whichever one of you is without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 7 says, The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people, so thou shalt put away evil from among you. What is Jesus doing here when he's saying to them, whichever one of you is sinless, you be the first one? Jesus is simply forcing these legalists to go strictly by the law. That's what you wanted. You wanted to go by the law. Then let's go by the law. But if you do, understand that you condemn yourself. He said to them, in essence, you need to look at the beam that's in your own eye before you take the speck that's out of somebody else's eye. In effect, Jesus is saying to these men, and he's even saying it to us, you're no better than she is. Your heart is filled with murder. Your heart is filled with hatred. Your heart is filled with hypocrisy. All things worthy of death yourself. Someone once said that if our inner thoughts were written on our foreheads, we'd always be wearing a hat to cover it up. The Bible tells us that at that moment, Jesus then stooped down and drew in the dust again. I get the sense that no one was talking at this point. There was probably a really eerie silence going on. You know, I'm talking about those moments of awkward silence when no one's saying anything and you don't know what's coming next and everyone's starting to feel a little uncomfortable. That's probably what was happening here. But during this time of awkward silence, conviction begins to settle in their hearts. Notice verse 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. During that time of awkward silence, conviction begins to settle in their heart. But the Bible says that Jesus stooped down and started writing again. What was Jesus writing this time? Well, again, we don't know. But maybe, possibly, 
he was writing something that had been written by the finger of God before. In Daniel chapter 5, meany, meany, tekel you farsin. And it simply means this, you are weighed in the balance and you're found wanting. He brings it back home to these guys. You're so judgmental. You're so quick to pass judgment on other people. You're so quick to, 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 to come down hard and with the letter of the law, but yet you're just as guilty and you overlook your own. And you excuse your own while you condemn another. But you're worthy of death too. Now look at verse 9. Verse 9 says that they began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. And they went away because they were convicted in their own conscience. They're finally convicted of their own sins. But you know what? Here's an application with all of this. It's always more comfortable to focus on another person's sins than it is to confront your own. As these people filed out, they had shame, probably on their faces. They admitted that they were unable to judge as they wanted to. But I love the last part of verse 9. Look at the last part of verse 9 even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. I love this because the Bible indicates to us that Jesus is the only one who is qualified to deliver judgment. And I also find it interesting that the woman was still standing there. Have you ever thought about that before? Why didn't she leave? She could have left with all the others. But she stayed behind. And it leads to the third point. We find that there was confrontation. We find that there was conviction. But now we see that there's comfort. Look at verse 10. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now at this point, we realize how little we know about this woman. Was she gentle and likable? Or was she harsh and obnoxious? As she stood in the midst of her accusers, was she softly sobbing the tears of a person who was crushed by her shame? Or was she defiantly glaring at those who dared to drag her into the temple? We don't really know. All we know is that she'd been caught in a sin and was publicly paraded through the temple grounds. But what makes this story so beautiful is not the woman, but what makes it beautiful is the way that Jesus responds to her. Notice how Jesus treated her. First of all, he treated her with dignity. The leaders had treated her as an object, speaking about her in front of everyone, parading her around as if they were somehow better than her. But when Jesus spoke to her, he didn't view her as an embarrassing failure or an irritating difficulty. He saw a person, a person with a real need, a creation of God who possessed incredible worth to the Lord. Let me just say this in passing, friend. If you feel worthless today, remember that Jesus Christ will always treat you with dignity. He will always treat you with dignity. 
But secondly, we notice that Jesus treated her with compassion. You say, well, how did he treat her with compassion? Well, the first compassionate act that Jesus did was to write on the ground. The scribes and the Pharisees were loudly proclaiming her sins. But Jesus ignored all of that. He stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And suddenly, no one was looking at the woman. By diverting the attention and the stares of the crowd from this sinner to the sinless one, I think Jesus gave her a gift of compassion. She didn't need to be paraded around publicly. But Jesus draws attention away from her. But Jesus also treated her with frankness. Some people have said that Jesus was way too easy on sin here in this encounter. But I want you to notice that Jesus confronted this woman with the root of her problem when he said, go and sin no more. That phrase literally means leave your life of sin. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He wasn't easy on this encounter. She had already been confronted. She'd already been convicted about her sin. Now it was a chance for her to obey the command of Christ. Go and leave your life of sin. But Jesus also treated her with grace. This woman was condemned by the leaders, condemned even by her own sins. But because of the grace of Jesus Christ, he looked at her and he said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I'm so thankful for Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad for that if you're saved this morning? But he also gave her hope. This woman needed hope for the future. The phrase go literally means from the now. That's what it means. From the now. In other words... From now on, from this point forward, Jesus was forward-looking, not past-focused. You ever known people like that? Always dwelling in the past, always bringing up other people's sins. Remember this, remember that. Jesus was forward-looking from the now. From this point forward, go and sin no more. Live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. He gave her a new life. He gave her new identity, the power to overcome sin. Jesus wasn't interested just in what she had done, but also in what she could become. Now, how can we bring this passage home for us today? I want to give you some principles for each part of our outline. The confrontation, the conviction, the comfort. First of all, confrontation. Sometimes we need to confront others. That is a truth. The Bible says that we have this responsibility, especially in a New Testament church. But when we do it, we're to do it with gentleness, with humility, and with a desire to restore the sinning brother or sister. But all too often, listen, we come with stones in our hands instead of grace in our heart. Maybe we should have some awkward silence for a minute here. How typical. Someone has said something. Someone's done something. I don't like it. 
We're going to confront it, and we're going to have this out. We're going to do it. But it's all condemnation, and we come with stones in our hands rather than grace in our heart to work it out with our brother or sister. We justify ourselves. We justify our own attitudes. We justify our own sins with the gossip and with the lying and with the backbiting and all the other things as we, as we condemn the person for what they did or said. The Bible teaches us that when it comes time to confronting other people, it's got to be done with gentleness, with humility. Read Galatians 6, verse 1. A desire to restore and so, may the Lord help us, amen, to come with grace in our heart. That's how Jesus treated this woman. Then you see the conviction. Conviction is good, friend, not bad. Don't we often see conviction as a bad thing, a negative? We do. But it's good. It's God's way of letting us know how much he cares for us. That he's not going to let us just continue on in a destructive way. For without conviction, we can never change. Let me say it again. Without conviction, we can never change. You know, the easy believism, the easy prayerism mentality, there's no conviction of their sin. There's no sorrow of, their, of, of heart over their offense to God. But without conviction, there will never be change. When conviction comes, we ought to see it as God's goodness in our life. And we ought to face it courageously, not like a coward. Listen, the Pharisees were confronted by Jesus Christ. They had their needs opened up by Christ. But instead of sticking around and finding forgiveness and cleansing, they went away. And I would simply say to you this morning, don't run away from the Lord when you're left alone with Jesus. Respond to Him, even today. Conviction is God's goodness in your life. And then thirdly, comfort. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2, in verse 4, that it is the goodness and the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. When you're tired of fighting, when you're weary of trying to run and hide from the Lord, God brings conviction, and it's His goodness in our heart. It's His grace towards us that leads us to repentance. That's the time to come. To Jesus Christ and let his grace and forgiveness flood your life. Do you know something else about grace? Grace gives you a new start. Grace gives a fresh start in a person's life. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. <coughs> in Christ, you can have a fresh start. You can start over. Jesus said, go from the now. Leave your life of sin. You can start over and live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Maybe you've made some mistakes in your life. Don't let your mistakes dictate your future, friend. 
lot of people do that. They wallow around in self-pity. They wallow around in the past over past failures. And instead of leaving it with the Lord and finding forgiveness with God and getting up and moving on, they stunt their own growth by continually living in the past. Don't let mistakes of the past dictate your future. Commit to the Lord to start over with the Lord's help. You can. It's never too late. Amen? So, let me conclude. Have you ever wondered why Jesus let this woman go? After all, there's only one who was present who was qualified by his own sinlessness to cast a stone. That was Jesus himself. If Jesus cared so much about God's law, why didn't he insist that payment be made for the woman's transgression? And like I said, some people think that Jesus was too soft on sin here. But you know the reason Jesus didn't condemn her? He didn't condemn her because he had come to be condemned for her. That's the reason. He wasn't sweeping her sin under the rug at all. He was just anticipating the shedding of his blood for them on the cross. And friend, that's God's solution for sin. Not ignoring it, not minimizing it, but taking it upon himself. That's God's solution for sin. I want to finish with a story. A story that's told by an author that I read after at times. But he tells the story of a dream that he had one time. And he called the dream the room. And it illustrates this truth for us so very well that Jesus takes it upon himself. That is God's solution for our sin. He goes on to say that there were not distinguishing features of the room except for one wall. One wall was covered with small index card files. They were like the ones in libraries that list titles by authors or subject in alphabetical order. But these files, which stretched from floor to ceiling, had very different headings on them. The first to catch my attention was one that read, Girls I Have Liked. And then, without being told, I knew exactly where I was. This lifeless room with its small files was a crude catalog system for my life. Here were written the actions of every moment, big and small, in a detail my memory could never match. A sense of wonder and curiosity, coupled with horror and fear, stood, stirred up within me as I began to randomly open these files and explore their contents. Some brought joy and sweet memories. Others a sense of shame and regret, so intense that I would look over my shoulder to see if anyone was watching me. A file named Friends was next to one marked Friends I Have Betrayed. The titles ranged from the mundane to the outright weird. Books I have read, jokes I've laughed at, things I've done in anger. Often there were many more cards than I expected. Sometimes there were fewer than I had hoped. I was overwhelmed by the sheer volume of the life that I had lived. 
Could it be possible that I had the time to write each of these thousands, possibly millions of cards? But each card confirmed this truth. Each was written in my own handwriting, each signed with my signature. When I came to a file marked Lustful Thoughts, I felt a chill run through my body. I pulled the file out only an inch, not willing to test its size, and drew out a card. I shuddered at its detailed contents. I felt so sick to think that such a moment had been recorded. Suddenly, I felt an almost animal rage. One, uh, one thought dominated my mind. No one must ever see these cards. No one must ever see this room. I have to destroy them. In an insane frenzy, I yanked the file out. Its size didn't matter now. I had to empty and burn the cards. But as I took the file at one end and began pounding it on the floor, I could not dislodge a single card. I became so desperate and pulled out a card only to find it as strong as steel when I tried to tear it up. Defeated and utterly hopeless, I returned the file to its slot. Leaning my forehead against the wall, I let out a long, self-pitying sigh, and then the tears came. I began to weep, sobs so deep that the hurt started in my stomach and shook me through. I fell on my knees and cried. I cried out in shame from the overwhelming shame of it all. The rows of files and shells swirled in my tear-filled eyes. No one must ever ever know of this room. I must lock it up and hide the key. But then, as I pushed away the tears, I saw him. No, please, not him. Not here. Anyone but Jesus. I watched helplessly as he began to open the files and read the cards. I couldn't bear to watch his response. And in the moments that I could bring myself to look at his face, all I saw was sorrow deeper than my own. He seems to intuitively go to the worst boxes. Why did he have to read every one? Finally, he turned and looked at me from across the room. He looked at me with grace in his eyes. But this was a compassion that didn't anger me. It convicted me. I dropped my head covered my face with my hands, and began to cry again. He walked over, put his arm around me. He could have said so many things, but he didn't say a word. He just cried with me. And then he got up and walked back to the wall of files, and starting at one end of the room, he took out a file and one by one began to sign his name over mine on each card. No, I shouted, rushing to him. All I could find to say was no, no, as I pulled the card from him. His name shouldn't be on these cards, but there it was, written in red, so rich, so dark, so alive. The name of Jesus covered mine.
and it was written in his blood. He gently took the card back. He smiled a sad smile and continued to sign the cards. I don't think I'll ever understand how he did it so quickly, but the next instant it seemed I heard him close the last file and walk back to my side. He placed his hand on my shoulder and simply said, it is finished. We're all guilty, vile, undeserving sinners. And we have no right to judge. There's only one who can. It's Jesus Christ himself. But instead of passing condemnation, he took it on himself in his own blood. Amen? If you're not saved here this morning, you can be. Confess your sin. Repent. Turn to Christ in faith. Let him wash it away. You're a child of God here this morning. But you kind of have this self-righteous attitude about you sometimes. Quick to judge like the Pharisees while overlooking your own. Confess that before the Lord too. Ask the Lord to help us be like Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, use your word today as you see fit. In Jesus' name.